Just a couple quick announcements before we begin this week's episode. This will be the last episode for about three to four weeks, as I am expecting the birth of my second child, so I appreciate your patience. Also, if you could do me a huge favor and rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to it, that would help the show out tremendously. Thank you all for your support. This podcast deals with true crime. I will be speaking openly and frankly about subjects such as murder, rape, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. It is a terrible thing when a child is abducted. As a father, I can only imagine what a nightmare parents must go through. It is the worst scenario that you can think of. It's even worse when years go by with no clue as to what happened to your child. There is one case that was part of several famous cases in the late 70s and early 80s that caused major change in the way the police dealt with missing children reports, as well as shed a light on child sex trafficking. And even though the case is still unsolved, it is one of the weirdest child abduction cases ever. Tonight, on the True Crime Truckers podcast, I bring you the case of Johnny Gosh. something that's embedded in our generation's minds and hopefully will pass it on to the kids that are now raising their kids. That's the incredible thing after 35 years there is not clue one. For John and Noreen's sake I hope that there's a resolution. For all of our sakes I hope there's a resolution. John David Gosh was born November 12, 1969 in Des Moines, Iowa to parents John and Noreen Gosh. Johnny had an older half-brother and a half-sister from his mother's first marriage. Johnny was described as a polite and helpful young man. In 1982, Johnny Gosh's family lived in West Des Moines, an affluent neighborhood of about 20,000 residents in the greater Des Moines metropolitan area. Johnny had continuously asked his parents if he could be a paperboy, as he wanted to earn money in order to buy himself a dirt bike. They were reluctant at first, but eventually agreed that he could have a paper route as long as he was accompanied either by his mother or his father. On Sunday, September 5th, 1982, in the suburb of West Des Moines, Johnny Gosh left home before dawn to begin his paper route. Although it was customary for Johnny to awaken his father to help him with the route, 
The boy took only the family's miniature dots and Gretchen with him that morning. Other paper carriers for the Des Moines Register would later report having seen Gosh at the paper drop, picking up his newspapers. It was the last sighting of Gosh that can be corroborated by multiple witnesses. The rubber bands from the Des Moines Sunday Register and the wagon he carried the newspapers in, the only evidence he was here. A neighbor named Mike reported that he observed Gosh talking to a stocky man in a blue two-toned Ford Fairmont with Nebraska plates or a blue gremlin. Mike did not know what was discussed because he was observing from his bedroom window. As Gosh headed home, Mike noticed another man following Gosh. Another witness, John Rossi, saw a man in a blue car talking to Gosh and, quote, thought something was strange. He looked at the license plate but could not recall the plate number. He said, quote, I keep hoping I'll wake up in the middle of the night and see that number on the license plate as distinctly as the night and day, but that hasn't happened, unquote. Rossi underwent hypnosis and told the police some of the numbers and that the plate was from Warren County, Iowa. John and Noreen Gosh, Johnny's parents, began receiving phone calls from customers along their son's route, complaining of undelivered papers. John performed a cursory search of the neighborhood around 6 a.m. He immediately found Johnny's wagon full of newspapers two blocks from their home. The Goshes immediately contacted the West Des Moines Police Department and reported Johnny's disappearance. Noreen, in her public statements and her book, Why Johnny Can't Come Home, has been critical of what she perceives as a slow reaction time from authorities and of the policy at the time that Gosh could not be classified as a missing person until 72 hours had passed. By her estimation, the police did not arrive to take her report for a full 45 minutes. Initially, the police came to believe that Gosh was a runaway. During one of the first searches organized by the neighborhood volunteers, the then West Des Moines police chief, Orville Cooney, stood up on a park bench with a bullhorn and told everybody to go home and that Johnny was, quote, nothing but a damn runaway, unquote. Later, they changed their statement, suggested that Gosh was kidnapped, but they were unable to establish a viable motive. They turned up little evidence and arrested no suspects in connection with the case. I think that our son was taken off the corner of 42nd and Marcourt. I don't believe for one minute that he ran away or walked voluntarily with anyone. He just wouldn't do that. A few months after his September 1982 disappearance, Noreen Gosh said that her son was spotted in Oklahoma when a boy yelled to a woman for help before being dragged off by two men. Over the years, several private investigators have assisted the Goshes with their search for their son. Among them are Jim Rothstein, a retired New York City police detective, and Ted Gunderson, a retired chief of the Los Angeles FBI branch. In 1984, Gosh's photograph appeared alongside that of Juanita Rafaela Estevez on mill cartons across America. They were the second and third abducted children to have their plights publicized in this way. The first was Aton Pates. On August 12, 1984, Eugene Martin, another Des Moines area paper boy, disappeared under similar circumstances. He disappeared while delivering newspapers on the south side of Des Moines. This is the corner, southwest 14th and Highview, where the newspapers Eugene Martin was delivering were found. 
It's believed Jean Martin was abducted. That was two years ago. Jean is still missing, and police really don't know any more now than they did then. As far as uh, finding out what happened to him, uh, making an arrest, yeah, about the first day, we knew as much as we think as we do know now about what actually happened and who did it. I've still got my hopes up, but I'm, it's getting worse and worse as it goes along. We're still hoping that he's out there somewhere and somehow or another he will contact us. The leads have dwindled down to less than a trickle, and most leads now are from people who have had a dream or some sort of vision. But still, police follow up on any lead they can. I'd have to say at this point that uh, if, in fact, we ever solve this case, it's probably going to be through some information that we come up with uh, while we're investigating something else. At one point, Des Moines Police, FBI, Division of Criminal Investigation, other law enforcement agencies, and even volunteers were actively looking for Eugene Martin. A special Martin hotline was set up for phone tips, and the reward for information topped $150,000, but none of it worked. It's been the major frustration that uh, I've experienced or seen other people experience here on the department in the 14 years I've been on the department. I'll never give up hope, long as, it, long as there's no body or no evidence pointing in that direction, I'll never give up hope. On this, the anniversary, there are those who say it's going to happen again, just like it happened to Johnny Gosh and Gene Martin. A kid will just be gone without a trace. Beverly Fisher, 5 TV News. Authorities were unable to prove a connection between the two cases, yet Noreen Gosh claims that she was personally informed of the abduction a few months in advance by a private investigator who was searching for her son. She was told the kidnapping, quote, would take place in the second week in August 1984, and it would be a paper boy from the south side of Des Moines, unquote. The case generated national interest as Noreen Gosh became increasingly vocal about the inadequacy of law enforcement's investigation of missing children cases. She established the Johnny Gosh Foundation in 1982 through which she visited schools and spoke at seminars about the modus operandi of sexual predators. She lobbied for the Johnny Gosh Bill, state legislation which would mandate an immediate police response to reports of missing children. The bill became law in Iowa in 1984, and similar or identical laws were later passed in Missouri and seven other states. In August of 1984, Noreen Gosh testified in Senate hearings on organized crime, speaking about organized pedophilia and its alleged role in her son's abduction. She began receiving death threats. Gosh also testified before the U.S. Department of Justice, which provided $10 million to establish the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Gosh was invited to the White House by President Ronald Reagan for the dedication ceremony. In 1989, 21-year-old Paul A. Benassi 
told his attorney, John DeCamp, that he had been abducted into a sex ring with Gosh as a teenager and was forced to participate in Gosh's kidnapping. John Gosh met with Benassi and believed he was telling the truth. Noreen later met him and said he told her things, quote, he could only know from talking with her son, unquote. He said that Johnny had a birthmark on his chest, a scar on his tongue, and a burn scar on his lower leg. Although a description of the birthmark had been widely circulated, information about the scars had not been made public. Benassi also described a stammer that Johnny had when he was upset. The FBI and local police do not believe that Benassi is a credible witness in the case and have not interviewed him. These people, when they get a hold of young kids and stuff, you know, they force you to do things and, and they, they photograph it, they, they film it. Um, and the whole purpose for that is to either blackmail you into staying with them or to, make, to split your mind up so that you don't even remember who you are. Benassi accused Republican Party activist and businessman Lawrence E. King Jr., who also served as the director of the Franklin Credit Union in Omaha, Nebraska, of running an underage prostitution ring and victimizing him since an early age. Paul claims to have seen Johnny in 1986 on a trip to Colorado, where Johnny was being kept by a man called the Colonel. I guess he tried to run away from it one time and they branded him. In 1990, a county grand jury declined to charge King, finding the allegations to be, quote, a carefully crafted hoax. Paul Benassi and Alicia Owen were indicted on state perjury charges. A federal grand jury also declined to indict anyone for the child prostitution, but did return indictments against Owen for perjury and King for fraud related to the credit union. The latter was accused of looting $40 million from the bank and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. The bank was shut down in November 1988 when it was raided by the FBI, the IRS, and the NCUA. King was released from prison in April of 2001. A Republican from the Midwest, Lawrence E. King, is serving a 15-year prison sentence for a multi-million dollar fraud. But financial crime is only half the story. Paul Bernassi was a victim of King's abuse. He was also sent by King to lure Boys Town youngsters off campus. On February 27, 1999, the U.S. District Court of the District of Nebraska awarded Bernassi $1 million in compensatory damages and punitive damages. Bernassi had sued King, who failed to respond to the civil lawsuit. Thus, a default judgment was entered against King, who ceased his appeal attempts in early 2000. According to Noreen Gash's account, she was awakened at around 2.30 a.m. one morning in March of 1997 by a knock at her apartment door. Waiting outside was Johnny Gosh, now 27, accompanied by an unidentified man. There was a knock on my door, a persistent knocking. And I went to the door and I could see a young man standing out there and I kept looking at his eyes, and the eyes don't change. And so I said, who is it? And he said, it's me, Mom, Johnny. Gosh said she immediately recognized her son, who opened his shirt to reveal a birthmark on his chest. Quote, we talked for about an hour or an hour and a half. He was with another man, but I have no idea who the person was. Johnny would look over to the other person for approval to speak, unquote said Gosh. 
Quote, he didn't say where he is living or where he was going, unquote. In a 2005 interview, Gosh said, quote, the night that he came here, he was wearing jeans and a shirt and had a coat on because it was March. It was cold and his hair was long. It was shoulder length and it was straight and dyed black, unquote. After the visit, she had the FBI create a picture she said looked like Johnny. Gosh self-published a book in 2000 titled Why Johnny Can't Come Home. The book presents her understanding of what her son went through based on the original research of various private investigators and her son's visit. On September 1st, 2006, Gosh reported that she found photographs left at her front door, some of which she posted on her website. One color photo shows three boys bound and gagged. She claims that a black and white photo appears to show a 12-year-old Johnny Gosh with his mouth gagged, his hands and feet tied, and an apparent human brand on his shoulder. A third photo shows a man, possibly dead, who may have something tied around his neck. Mrs. Gosh alleges that the man was one of the, quote, perpetrators who molested my son, unquote. I could not get my breath. And I thought I was going to pass out at seeing my son like that. And if you look closely at this one, over in this area, there's dark pigmentation. It is not a shadow. That is the birthmark that Johnny had. It was always up in that area of his chest. Gosh later said that the first two photos had originated on a website featuring child pornography. On September 13th, an anonymous letter was mailed to the Des Moines police, reading, Gentlemen, someone has played a reprehensible joke on a grieving mother. The photo in question is not one of her son, but of three boys in Tampa, Florida, about 1979 or 1980, challenging each other to an escape contest. There was an investigation concerning that picture made by the Hillsborough County, Florida Sheriff's Office. No charges were filed, and no wrongdoing was established. The lead detective on this case was named Zalva. This allegation should be easy enough to check out. Nelson Zalva, who worked for the Hillsborough County, Florida Sheriff's Office in the 1970s, said the details of the letter were true and adds that he also investigated the black and white photo in 1978 or 1979 before Gosh's disappearance. Quote, I interviewed the kids, and they said there was no coercing or touching. I could never prove a crime, unquote, Salva said. When asked for proof that this was indeed the same photo from the investigation nearly three decades prior, Salva could not provide any. According to the documentary film, Who Took Johnny?, only three boys in the picture were identified by law enforcement, but not one of them is thought to be Johnny. Noreen Gosh still believes the picture to be that of her son. That's what I found that morning, sitting there empty. There was no crime scene. He just vanished. Sunday, September 5th, approximately 6 a.m. 12-year-old John Gosh had been delivering papers in this affluent neighborhood of West Des Moines. That was the last time he was seen. The parents believe the boy is alive and has been kidnapped. Johnny, we love you. 
We're waiting for you to come home. We're doing everything in our power to get you back. Take care, babe. Thousands of people have been searching for the boy, but nothing positive has turned up. I have said this many times. If Johnny had not had a mother, he would have had no one, absolutely no one looking for him. I guess I'm just more appalled than shocked anymore. I believe that my son deserved 110% of my energy to try to find out what happened to him. The police say they have no crime. I have no son. The 2014 Rumor Award-winning produced documentary, Who Took Johnny?, is available for streaming through Amazon Video on-demand service. The documentary film includes interviews from both of Gosh's parents. This case is a very strange and tangled mess. When you research Johnny's disappearance, it's easy to go down deep into a rabbit hole of conspiracy, so you have to be diligent as to what the sources are for the information that you are gathering. That being said, just keep in mind that these conclusions are my own opinion and my opinion alone. You can draw whatever conclusions you would like based on all the evidence from this case. Noreen Gosh is an interesting character. While I feel great sympathy for the fact that she, as a mother, had a child who went missing, there are definitely times when I have some trepidation about certain aspects of her story. Her timeline of the abduction of Johnny that she has gathered from eyewitness accounts seems to change almost every time she tells it. And while some of that can be attributed to new details and information coming out as time goes on, there are certain aspects that just do not add up. For instance, in one of the retellings, she says that an eyewitness saw a man use a stun gun on Johnny before loading him into the getaway car. Johnny was abducted in 1982, and the first commercial stun gun was released to the public in 1983. Another thing that should be taken into consideration is the fact that in 1989, at the time that Paul Bonassi was making statements about his supposed involvement in Johnny Gosh's abduction, he was in a Nebraska prison charged with sexual abuse of a child and had been diagnosed with multiple personality disorder. While undoubtedly there are pedophile rings in this country in which children are trafficked for sex and child pornography, I tend to believe in the idea of Arkham's razor in this case. 
If you're not familiar with the concept of Arkham's Razor, it states that the simplest answer is typically the correct one. I believe that Johnny was abducted that Sunday morning by someone local, someone who knew the family closely or maybe just casually. In most child abduction cases, the abductor is known to the victim. I also believe that Johnny was abducted for sexual purposes and that Johnny was ultimately murdered. In 90% of child abduction cases, the child is murdered within 48 hours of being kidnapped. As for Noreen's claim that Johnny came and visited her in March of 1997, only Noreen knows the validity of that claim. Perhaps she was visited by somebody who was Johnny, or claimed to be Johnny. I don't want to discredit Noreen. However, I believe that as a distraught mother of a missing child, that she clings to anything that brings her hope that her child may still be alive. It is my personal belief that all subsequent sightings and stories about Johnny Gosh still being alive after 1982 were fabricated. Unfortunately, you have people that want to attach themselves to cases like this to get a small amount of notice. In the case of Johnny Gosh's abduction, it was one of the most famous child abduction cases of the late 20th century. So it is not that far-fetched of an idea that people would make up stories in order to be part of the investigation. If you have any information on the abduction of Johnny Gosh, contact the West Des Moines Police Department at area code 515-222-3320 or contact the Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Truckers Podcast. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org backslash truecrimetrucker backslash. Also, if you would like to donate to the show and get yourself a True Crime Truckers Podcast sticker, go to www.patreon.com backslash true crime truckers podcast you can also find me on instagram at michael.prit81 stay safe